Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, rate hike. The Bank of Canada raises their key interest rate for the eighth time. Will this be the last? And new housing with construction underway on Sinoc on the south side of the Bard Street Bridge. We look at the impact of 6,000 new rental units and 1,200 condos on the Kitsilano skyline. And COVID forces us to work from home, but why are well-paid members of Parliament digging taxpayers for their home internet costs? And from Google to Ticketmaster to Facebook, is government finally willing to take on big tech? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. So let's touch base a little bit. Uh, any surprises for you today? None whatsoever. This is what Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, is so good at. No surprises. Uh, he telegraphs in every which way what they're going to do, short of standing on a stump and saying, this is what I'm going to do. But uh, there are no surprises. Markets don't like surprises, either negative or positive, because then they have to react immediately. The markets have reacted exactly as we thought. And um, this could be the last interest rate hike in a while, depending on what goes on with inflation in the months to come. Now, Tiff Macklem did talk about a, a pause. How real is that pause? do you think? What, what, would, what would change his mind in regards to that pause? Oh boy, I, I tell you, if, if inflation doesn't continue to soften, albeit jazz, it's only softened a little bit, mm-hmm. but the tra- trajectory is in the right direction. If it doesn't soften, the last thing I've got uh, in my notes to you for today is, although the statement also warned that the bank was willing to raise rates further if needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now, the inflation peaked at about 8.1% uh, mid-2022. Uh, most recently in December, it clocked in at about 6.3%. Uh, where do you see these rates going in 2023? We know, well, we've been told they're going to be heading down. Do you think it's going to be a sle- uh, pretty steep decline, or do you think it's going to take some time in regards to getting it down to that 2% level that Mr. Macklem has talked about? We might not see 2%, and now I'm sticking my neck out to January, (laughs) February next year. But I would think by year end today, and this is just... You know, what what I feel and what I've digested and what I'm reading, probably somewhere around three and a half, three point seven percent year end this year. That's not going to be enough for the Bank of Canada to start to lower rates. But getting from here, Jazz, to mm-hmm. three or three and a half percent, three and three quarter percent is not going to be easy on everybody because uh, uh, inflation is still going to take a bite and interest rates are still going to be higher than what they were for the last several years. So for us to get back to what you and I might call normal is going to be quite some time. But I think looking with our long-term binoculars that uh, it's going to be probably a year before we're in the two, two and a half percent range. But remember, and I say this very carefully, remember Mm -hmm. that the bank's range is one to three percent. Their goal is two percent. So with three percent, they're not going to be unhappy. Mm -hmm. Um, When I look at gas prices uh, over the last week, week and a half, they've been, actually, like a couple of weeks, they've been inching up slowly. Uh, you know, a buck sixty-five, buck seventy, buck seventy-five, buck eighty. Um, I was hearing from one report that it could potentially get two dollars a liter in the Lower Mainland over the next two or three weeks, and potentially peaking in the summer at about two dollars and forty cents. Even that one one analyst was saying potentially even two dollars and sixty cents a liter this summer. I mean, that that's got to make you pause a little bit in regards to some of these predictions, just because energies energy costs. Uh, impact our food, impact our goods and services. It impacts everything. 
Absolutely, and there's a two-pronged problem. Number one, what's the price of crude oil going to be? It's uh, hovering uh, uh, up now uh, in the high $70 range, and where is it going to go? But the other thing is refinery capacity and the fact that uh, we are in the probably one of the worst places in Canada to be. The Parkland refinery uh, is going to have some maintenance coming up. That's on this side of the border. And the um, Richfield refinery on the other, I believe it's Richfield, but the one on the other side of the border also, they take it down for maintenance as they change from winter to spring and summer gas. And uh, so ours is not only the price of oil jazz, but the fact is, is that we really don't have a ready supply that is consistent all the time. So I think a lot of it is going to be not the price as much as can we get enough. And uh, we in BC are again are going to suffer. Then you add in all the taxes. We're the highest taxed uh, area anywhere probably in North America, including California. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be a situation also. But when you take gasoline prices going up and you got food inflation that may have come down a little but is still biting people really hard, that becomes a bit of a conundrum going on through the end of this year. Now, the hope still is a, a soft recession, uh, although, you know, it's very hard to hard to predict that. I mean, when you look at what you've been talking about and then the broader uh, repercussions of that, uh, public mood, um, which can impact uh, political decisions as well, it's still a very... Um, an easy time, isn't it, here in Vancouver and British Columbia in regards to the cost of living, just because of, uh, even with a uh, 25 basis point increase, I mean, things are quite tenuous. When I turn on the news, uh, it's always a tech firm laying people off. I think Hudson's Bay today was talking about layoffs as well. It's a tough time right now. It is a tough time, and it's going to continue to be. Uh, you, you, you just can't paint this over with like with bright smiles uh it's going to be tough and it's going to be tough in the months to come interest rates are still up mortgage rates are still up the housing market which is that the housing market if you're in a house you're paying a reasonable mortgage and you have some equity in it you have what's known as a wealth effect jazz and wealth effect gives people confidence they go out and shop but right now the real estate market is still taking it and will for a while longer we think and uh, that's that, that that takes away some of people's confidence they don't go out and spend as readily and the housing market it, uh, contributes so much to our economy right across the board that uh, it will be impactful and impactful for months to come I was looking at a newspaper um, um, article today today and, and, and it hits you and there's a, a first-time buyer um, monthly mortgage payments of three thousand dollars a variable rate and then as these rates have increased that mortgage rate has now gone to five thousand dollars a month so the poor family is just scraping whatever dollars they can to make the payments a classic example of house rich um, and then you know something has to give in any fa in anybody's family finances when you're paying five thousand dollars a month and and uh, it's very tenuous at the moment and let me remind everybody, everybody, that that's $5,000 a month, 3000 5000 after tax dollars. So in order to pay five, 
you might have to earn 7500 or 8000 and give the government their share. I was going to say their fair share, but nothing's fair. Give, give the government their share. So when somebody says they've got to pay five, really they've got to pay eight and pay the taxes on that or 8500 or whatever their marginal tax rate is. And that's something that's got to be taken into consideration also. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Thanks, Jazz. I'm glad uh, we're able to do this next segment. You know, sometimes you pick up the morning paper or or you log on online uh, more accurately these days and you see an article and it kind of infuriates you. Uh, I was almost there today. It was the National Post. And the National Post did a you know a, a great story here, and they just basically FOI'd uh, the expenses of all MPs, all 338 of them, between July 1st uh, to September 30th, 2022. So all 338 um, members of Parliament. And what they found was 57 members of Parliament charged the internet bill for their primary residence. Now, look, our MPs, uh, like the rest of us, we're using Zoom uh, at home uh, for proceedings in the House of Commons, for committee meetings, uh, for probably caucus meetings as well. Uh, and of course, those um, in, those internet charges can be anywhere from seventy dollars per month to uh, MPs who live in rural locations, which is about two hundred dollars per month. In total, taxpayers pay just over. $16,000 uh, for those three summer months to provide internet, internet service to the homes of 57 MPs. Um, I don't know about you. Now, as you know, I've been a member of the Legislative Assembly in MLA. Uh, I also did the same thing in regards to uh, conducting meetings from home, uh, being a uh, being involved in caucus meetings. I did attend um, meetings in the legislature as well. In fact, at one time, there's 12 of us only during the height of COVID that approved, I think, $41 billion in spending. But when I saw this, I, I hit the roof and I'm like, this is just ridiculous. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind what you pay a member of parliament right now. You pay them $185,000 per year, and that's their base salary. That's got nothing to do with their committee work. It's got nothing to do with them being in cabinet. Uh, none of that. $185,000 base salary. I'm not sure why members of parliament cannot just eat that cost. You're going to have internet service at home anyway. Anyway, joining me now is Carson Binda, the British Columbia Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Carson, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on uh, this afternoon, Jazz. Well, I, uh, I, I, I was, um, every time I think about this, it just makes me angry. Just your thoughts on this. I mean, I, look, I think we should be uh, subsidizing the uh, for government. When government, there's a cost to democracy, the cost to running of government. But is it just me, or is this way over the top? Jazz, it makes my blood boil when I read the article this morning from the National Post. Listen, at the end of the day, if MPs are going to be billing taxpayers for things like home internet, then they need to act like the rest of us and find savings in other places. We're not an endless pool of money that they can tap again and again and again. Is In your mind, in, in the fact that you spent so much time covering government or following government expenditures, is there no process on the federal side to say, wait a minute, that's a, a, a little over the top? Uh, we're going to say no to that? Or is it just a question of, look, the MPs build it. Uh, it seems kind of reasonable. We're just going to push it through. Yeah, so at this point, um, it's been a policy in the House of Commons that MPs are allowed to bill for home internet. Um, so this wasn't something that changed as a result of the pandemic. Uh, it's been a long-standing policy that the House of Commons could change. 
Um, but at the end of the day, it's up for up to individual MPs uh, like Hetty Fry from Vancouver, who was named in this report, to really look for those savings elsewhere. We're already paying for things like their constituency offices to have internet, as well as their offices in Ottawa. We're paying for them to send out flyers to their constituents. You know, I think a lot of their constituents would welcome a break from that junk mail in exchange for uh, paying a little bit less for their MPs' home internet. Yeah, and I think in this case, Ms. Fry says she was immune-compromised, had to work from home. Uh, she is 81 years old. Hey, look, I totally understand that, safety and health first. But when you're making a base salary of $185,000, are you telling me you don't have a home internet? Of course you have home internet. And the fact that, that you're using it for, for government business, uh, I, I, I am just shocked. That why wouldn't you just just eat the cost? Like I, I, look, I, MLAs, I think we, we took um, – I think we f- froze our salaries at that time during COVID – I think the salary at that time for MLAs when I was there was about $108,000 a year. I didn't even remotely think about billing home home internet uh, costs uh, to taxpayers in British Columbia. It's just so absolutely silly uh, that they would even think about doing this. Um, is there anything what, – what do you think needs to be done in this case? I mean, I, I just think that it is small in the grand scheme of things in regards to how much money government does spend and for services and all that. But it, it just it just really makes me mad and make my blood boil as well that this is happening. What do you think should be done? Yeah, um, so what we're seeing here is really a tale of two economic downturns, one for the politicians and bureaucrats and the other one for the rest of us. I mean, at the same time, uh, since the start of the pandemic, MPs have given themselves, voted to give themselves $11,000 almost in pay raises. Um, So this is coming at a time when normal Canadians are already struggling and MPs are just showing how out of touch they are using their uh, fat cat salaries um, on things that aren't uh, aren't home internet, choosing to build taxpayers for that instead. Mm -hmm. So what we really need to see is we need to see British Columbian and, frankly, taxpayers all across Canada reaching out to their MPs and telling them that this isn't okay. They should be reaching out to the leaders of the political parties, uh, to Pierre Paglia, to Justin Trudeau, to Jagmeet Singh, um, and of course the leader of the Bloc Québécois as well, and telling them that it's unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable for their caucus members to be billing taxpayers uh, to the tune of, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars on home internet costs when one in five Canadians are struggling to even put food on their tables right now. Yeah, no, it is. It is. Um, it is. Uh, it's unconscionable, in my opinion. Carson, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on this afternoon, Jazz. Well, earlier this week, uh, we spoke to Hal Salem, who's a chairperson from the Squamish First Nation Council. We talked about the community's focus on taking control of, of its education system and the challenges to public safety that they're seeing on reserve land. We also spent some time talking about Sinoc. Now, the Sinoc development is quite unique in North America and that's being built on land that is... Um, been designated First Nations Reserve after the Squamish uh, Nation won a historic settlement in 2002. Uh, the land was uh, taken away uh, from the Squamish First Nations people in 1913. Now, look, the, the, the specific site is located on the south side of the Broad Street Bridge. Once completed over four phases, it'll be home to 6,000 apartments and 10,000 people packed over uh, 10 acres or so. Now, critics say because it's on First Nations land, there isn't the usual uh, public uh, consultation required. 
Uh, if you look at some of the uh, images that have been released over the last year and a half or so, people have, and critics have called it a Hong Kong-style towers that will forever change the uh, skyline um, of the area and downtown. They said, I don't know, studies have been, uh, have been shown. And the biggest challenge many folks have said is, look, you got all those people moving in uh, to these four, over these four phases, and yet there are just over 800 spaces for cars and about 4,400 spaces for bike parking. And that is it. And the repercussions are not just for that land, but for the surrounding uh, community of Vancouver. This is a Squamish Nation development. That is their land. They do not need to technically consult with the city, although they are talking to them, and with the broader community as well. Hal Salem was on the show two days ago. He asked for an update on the Sinoc development. Take a listen. We're well underway on construction of phase one. So a lot of the ground disturbance and movement of the earth has happened. Um, we're about to enter into construction on phase two out of four. Um, we'll be going to tender on most of the prime contracts soon for, uh, soon for that. While that's happening, we're also completing work on the design, final designs for phase three and four, and then eventually uh, working towards uh, construction on those. So a lot of infrastructure construction at this point, but not any cranes or anything like that yet. We have to build in all the sewage and hydro uh, utilities. Separate from that process, the city of Vancouver in the spring will also be launching their own engagement process with the wider community and the neighboring communities around all of the infrastructure changes that will be coming to the neighborhood. That's Hal Salem, who's the chairperson of the Squamish First Nation. Now, I also happened to talk to Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and we were talking broadly about uh, housing affordability. He did, he did bring up the issue of the Squamish First Nation and what they're doing uh, on those lands and what he hoped to do as a federal uh, one day, as a prime minister of this country. Take a listen to what he had to say. Well, because we know that build it, we can build quickly when we get the government gatekeepers out of the way. And you know who proved it? The Squamish people. They have a big, I'm sorry, it's not a big piece of land. It's a 10-acre piece of land in which they approved 6,000 units of housing, and they're getting it built in record time. Now, why were they able to get it done so fast? Because they didn't have to deal with City Hall. It's their land. They've demonstrated that if you get the bureaucrats out of the way, the mm-hmm. building can happen. And we'll be speaking to Hell Salem today at 5 o'clock just on that Synoc pro- project. Uh, that uh, Mr. Polyev had mentioned. Let's talk about drug decriminalization. Congratulate him for me. Congratulate <laughs> him for me. That's what we need to do is what they've done. We need to do that everywhere. Think about this. They're building 600 units of housing on each acre. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, and it is. All the wonderful families that are going to be able to enjoy those those units because of their foresight. That is, of course, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev the other day uh, talking about what the Squamish have been proposing. Now, it will change that skyline. And when you look at the models, when you look at the images, they it, it is a Hong Kong-style uh, skyscrapers that will change the look and feel of that neighbourhood as well. Joining me now to talk about Sinoc and its impact on the city is Gordon Price. He's a fellow with the SFU Centre for Dialogue and editor with View, uh, Viewpoint Vancouver. He is also a former city councillor as well. Gordon, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jazz, you know how much ex-politicians like a little airtime. <laughs> well, you're also, uh, uh, like I said, uh, been uh, you know quite involved in the issue of uh, development and yeah. housing in the city of Vancouver. Hey, Jazz, in I'm office. a resident of the West End. That, that and, too. And I remember them saying it was like Hong Kong back in the 60s. Yeah, well, you tell me, do you think this is a good project for the city? Oh, it's an amazing project. It's groundbreaking, (laughs) literally, of course, but not just in terms of the significance of how this will be such an economic development project for for the Squamish and a a precedent, you know, across all Indigenous projects. If it actually pulls off 
some of the stuff that's in there, particularly the parking ratio. If they can build this and only need 800 spaces, wow, that's going to have a huge impact around the world. That That's a parking ratio for a scale of development like that, where indeed you would be looking at places like Hong Kong and Singapore. But, but, there, but uh, I'm, yeah, It's not so much I'm skeptical. It's, I'd sure like to see see the rationale laid out on how that's going to work. It, it speaks to a carless society, and, and I, I, you know, someone would say, well, that's way too early when you have 886 uh, car parking spots for 10,000 people. Yeah, um, I don't know anything like that. that that's just a huge uh, gap, as it were, between the ratios that we have for the other mega projects around False Creek. Now they're the ones digging. that we would like to get to. Yeah. You know, but the ones that you have to expect, you're going to have to accommodate. Uh, well, what's the number? I don't think it's about 800. <laughs> the, the, and, and that's the thing. Would, would this have been built? Would this have been built if this was Vancouver City land, the way it's being proposed right now? Would this have been oh, approved? You, you mean the gatekeepers? Yeah. Yes, the gatekeepers. Yeah. No, that's exactly what that is. Uh, Paul Ev is right. If you don't have a gatekeeper, in other words, if you don't have a kind of democratic accountability, you don't have to get it through a city council or, or something, uh, some mechanism which determines the use of the land for the community in general. Of course you can do this. Mm-hmm. But uh, you can see that's such an, uh, an incredible question that's being asked. If, if indeed our city was to be developed on this model, then it's, it's basically out of the hands of the citizens who would be expected nonetheless to pay the taxes. And I just don't see anyone doing that. Have they in the past talked about, you were talking about the West End, we're going to build, not just West End, other parts of the city where it said we're going to build some towers, but we're going to build with less parking spots because oh, yeah. we want to get to a carless society. Yeah, I can tell you a great story. I moved into one of the first buildings on Concord, mm-hmm. and there was two units, uh, two parking spaces per unit. And after the building was completed in a few years, they went down and counted the number of spaces actually being used, and it was about half of that. And so based upon those observations, you know, real-life examples, yes, the, the subsequent parking ratios have been dropped. And and it, it, they have dropped, but in the past, have they not had to go back and build parking garages? Well, the most interesting case is the South Shore of False Creek, and that truly was utopian. They did likewise something very similar. They assumed that if they provided transit and it was a walkable, you know, as we would say today, community, that you wouldn't need as much parking as we traditionally did. And by gosh, it turned out that without transit, because they never really did get the amount they needed, uh, you have to build parking. And so they went back. There are two parking garages on the southern border of the south shore of False Creek, where you can see that uh, the parking was provided after the fact. The question for Sanok, though, is much more challenging. If, If that was the case, if it turned out there's a need for more parking, where are you going to build it and who's going to pay? More importantly, I think the question is relevant for the Concord Pacific Brewery site adjacent to Sanok. Will they have the same ratio? And in the case of Sanok, if it works, why wouldn't they? If it doesn't, will they be expected, though, to cover some of the overflow from the Sanok development? Do you think uh, the, in the Squamish First Nation, um, the, as Hal Salem said, they are going to consult, but they've already started uh, clearing the land, uh, he has told us that in a couple of years, you'll probably have the first tower up. Uh, so they're moving forward. The crane's not there, but they're moving forward. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about the uniqueness of this. I mean, First Nations communities have a, an absolute absolute right to build an economic yeah. base for themselves, yeah, just absolutely. like us non-First right. Nations have done. But do you do you see a tension there? I mean, I'm... Oh, yeah. It, I mean, I just... Uh, <laughs> you can look around and see the results. 
Yeah. So uh, this is not this is nothing in the sense new in that we haven't had examples of this before. And there are really some outstanding examples. The Okanagan Band, in particular, uh, the wine tourism, all of the rest that's been developed in this, uh, you know, Soyuz Oliver area, and, and there are other examples around the province. And there will be many, many more. This is where reconciliation meets capitalism. And it, and it turns out that it actually seems to work pretty well. I think that's the reason you're getting so much, uh, you know, across the board support for it politically. So, you know, done deal. But it does build on what the city has done in, the, you know, around Falls Creek for about half a century. This is a variation on the Concord Pacific development, uh, even the Olympic Village. It's not like we haven't built high-density residential before. This takes it, though, scales it up a lot and it lowers the bar as far as the amenities that have to be provided. There won't be the open space, the school. There won't be the degree. Uh, better be careful here. This may all be revised. I think it will. But the amount of retail you're going to need, and it certainly doesn't have what is going to be needed in the way of transit at this point. Now, the talk is all there, and this is what I think they're going to be consulting on. What are we going to need practically now to handle those 10,000 people and the Concord development? And uh, let's face it, development is going to go up Burrard Street in the way we've seen on Canby. There will be a lot, and, and the SkyTrain is being built with some intent to accommodate it. But making the connections down to Sanak, and what happens if that doesn't work? How people get on and off the Burrard Bridge, just even in terms of cycling infrastructure, it is a pretty major commitment. We, in that sense, it's very exciting. And if it works, this is going to be amazing and fabulous. No question, this would be a big advancement for the city. But uh, if they're going to do consultation, they're going to have to start laying out the specifics on how that's going to be done and, and who pays. I think there's a tenth million amount on the books for the streetcar line. Mm-hmm. You know, $10 million bucks is not a lot of money. If you actually had to build underground parking, you'd get about 200 units. Uh, so there's some really big bucks that are going to be on the table. And from the service agreement, I don't see any specifics around that. My, so negotiations to come, I think. Gordon, you raised prior to the break um, the issue of retail and schools and parks, and, and it would have been a different type of development with the city of Vancouver. Um, do you worry about the tension that could come from this? Not just as Sinoc, you, you one could argue the Tawasan First Nations, which is the first urban treaty signed in British Columbia under Gordon Campbell, that you're seeing some of that over the in that development as well. It's not just the mall; yeah, it's 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 the point. housing that comes from it with it as well. And a lot of that, I mean, there's going to be some amenities, but a lot of that is going to spill over to Delta, which is not going to be collecting those taxes. Right. I, yeah, I think the, the larger question is how we, you know, as I say these days, have the conversation if people are really fearful about talking or addressing. Uh, I think it's a lot, uh, yeah, the Swanson example. In fact, I've noticed right from the beginning. Uh, this is a case under the you know modern treaty negotiated with Gordon Campbell, where they basically did like uh, the Squamish Reserve have the right to do what they wanted on it. Now, again, subject to negotiation for service provision. So what they chose to do on this plan, uh, you know, you'll see it going on to the ferry in Swanson, is to pave it over. They paved over their part of the Pacific Flyway. And, and in my mind, immediately uh, it struck me that you can't at the same time talk about land defenders that the gap between uh, what you're saying, what you're asking us to understand is the indigenous lens, and and Sawasan Mills is just too great. 
but I, I get where you're coming. I get so where you don't talk about it. Yeah, I and get I where fear you, the same thing might happen in this case. I get people yeah, are scared to talk about. I it. I get where you're coming from when you guys are putting a shopping mall. But if you're going to take land out of the ALR so they can build an economic base for their community, I live next yeah. door to that mall in totally other other clear cut called Tawasson. Right. And and so Just you know, don't we, call yourself land defenders. <laughs> yeah, no, but, seriously. But, you can't. That is from uh, but a do, variety of But non-First Nations who live in the city of Vancouver call themselves land defenders. They also well, say they right. defend them. They're environmentalists. Yeah. I mean, so likewise with Sanak, it if you're saying that it's basically how Indigenous people... Well, you're asking us to believe that concrete high-rises has some kind of connection. It's, it's just a gap that's too great. So look, I... Totally get this, an economic development project, and as a trailblazer on some forms of how to build communities and provide for a lot of housing, rental housing, hopefully more affordable housing, that's huge, tremendous benefit. I think it's why, you know, Mayor Stewart before said, you know, a gift to the city, and that can all be true. But at the same time, no, I don't buy the argument that there is something so special that its deficiencies can't and having a transparency about it at the same time. If it's, if it's feared that crit- criticism of it constitutes some kind of, uh, well, fill-in word, uh, it, it is hard to talk about. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think that is where the danger is, is that the, the frustration, in a sense, that it builds because you're, you're not getting straightforward. Well, how do you say? I think at this point it's too early to judge. My guess is there will be revisions to Sanok. I, I think, you know, once its issues are identified, then exactly, you, you, this is what reconciliation means in a practical way. And mm-hmm. I think the same thing will be true, is being true, actually. I think we're seeing some good examples around the, the city elsewhere, uh, Heatherlands, uh, Jericho, that kind of thing. So uh, every reason to still remain optimistic, if somewhat a little cynical, you got to say, I see some of the way this is being marketed. Bill, it's not so much that it is a new way of doing things, but it builds on it. But you've got to recognize as well that it does lower the bar as far as mega project standards. Again, I think that's just an honest statement. It isn't going to meet the park space. It doesn't have these other factors that went into the development of Concord Pacific. Yeah. The city extracted a huge amount of public benefit out of that. Yeah, Gordon, we've we've run out of time, but I promise to have you on again because I think this is a very important conversation to have. Thank you once again for your time, Gordon. And thank you, Charles. Let's talk about um, the situation uh, on the Alex Fraser Bridge the other day. Uh, yesterday we spoke to um, a spokesperson for the Delta Police Department after the uh, force released some information on the incident where a man in distress uh, was uh, on, um, was well, police had to negotiate with the individual for about eight hours. And during that eight-hour period, um, the Delta Police Department uh, obviously said that the, the priority was to preserve life. Um, but saw drivers rubbernecking to get a view of the man in distress, honking horns, yelling at the the individual in crisis, and even encouraging them to take action. Some impacted drivers walked up to the bridge deck, made contact with officers, interfered with the negotiations, and even videotaped or photographed the individual in crisis. Um, A lot of that was uploaded to social media as well, just before 6 p.m., 
uh, frustrated motorists went around several highway vehicles uh, that were, they were managing the road closure. They struck a highway vehicle and a concrete barrier. So while officers were there dealing with this other issue, they then were forced to disengage from the crisis to deal with that particular incident because a frustrated motorist was tired of waiting. At 7 o'clock, there was an impaired driver uh, who also um, and drove around barricades. Uh, he was um, uh, caught and uh, he was issued a 90-day driving suspension. Uh, and his vehicle was impounded for 30 days. A very frustrating moment. Just after 8 o'clock, uh, they finally managed to um, convince the man that was in distress uh, to uh, uh, to climb back over the rail to safety and surrender to police. The individual was then provided with other medical attention he needed. It's a frustrating, um, it's frustrating just to even read that because certainly some of the behavior from um, our fellow citizens was just appalling. A tremendous amount of stress also on the Delta Police Department to make sure um, they were uh, making sure they had control of the situation. I wanted to speak to our next guest because uh, uh, he has been in and around um, dealing with traffic challenges. Grant uh, got, uh, got Gatru is a former traffic officer in Westminster and West Vancouver. Uh, he's now a forensic criminal and traffic consultant uh, at uh, ForensicTrafficPro.com. Grant, thank you for joining us today. Jazz, thanks for having me. Walk me through this. What, uh, in a situation like this, and I'm going to assume you've had to deal with some of these, what is the priority of the police? How do they go about sort of just getting control of the situation? You're right. I I dealt with this many times, uh, both uh, on the Petula Bridge when I was in the West and Lionsgate Bridge when I was in West Vancouver. And uh, generally, the call would go out we would respond and immediately uh, engage with the uh, with the subject in distress uh, and make a determination pretty fast whether or not we needed to close down the bridge or not. Um, yesterday's, or sorry, the other days on the Alex Fraser uh, Bridge sounds like a complete uh, a debacle, unfortunately, with all of the uh, distractions uh, facing the officers while they were dealing with uh, this particular person in distress. In your mind, and I don't want to play Monday morning quarterback, but do you think overall the, the Delta Police Department handled it uh, by the book, or do you think there 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 is room for improvement? There's no uh, well, there's no such thing as by the book, as you know. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we discussed years ago in West Vancouver was uh, uh, portable screens um, to uh, block off the. Uh, the incident so that traffic could still flow and people couldn't see what was going on uh, because it's, it's a dynamic situation and you have to both um, deal with the person in distress, but also consider the traffic issues that are being created. Um, and unfortunately what was described with people shouting and yelling and encouraging uh, the person to do something silly is not entirely unusual. We had an incident like that in the 1990s in New West, where, again, the Pat Bridge was shut down for many hours, and passerbys were yelling the same thing. So it's nothing new uh, where people get frustrated. And, uh, of course, what we deal with now that we didn't deal with back then was social media. Yeah. Um, I'm not too sure. Regarding Delta's incident, I didn't listen to their presser with you um, but the negotiator that they had, was that a police officer or was it someone from um, the mental health? Uh, um, that I do not know. That I do not know. 
Um, but certainly it took eight, eight hours. And uh, in those cases, do you, um, is there, how much thought is given to saying, look, let's keep one lane open and make sure the the traffic is moving. It's not moving very quickly, but it is moving. Um, or do you think that what they did last yesterday was just get folks off the off the bridge deck and, and just shut the bridge down? And this is the right thing to do. Like how how do you go about that decision making? That's a decision made by the supervisor. And in this particular case, there had to be some sort of way to deal with all the traffic that was backed up stuck. Um, it's unreasonable to expect, you know, people to sit stuck for three or four or five hours. You have to deal with them. They have to be turned around. They have to be rerouted. Something has to be done because blood is going to boil at the end of the day. Um, most uh, police negotiators, this, uh, they're, it's not their full-time gig. They go on a course, they take a negotiating course, and then they get called to calls like this but it's not their full-time gig so they don't have gobs of experience of dealing with it whereas mental health crisis uh, people that's their full-time job so in situations like this those are the people that should be called to negotiate with those people um, and and in a situation like that it might be resolved a lot faster I don't know who was negotiating for Delta police um, and this might be something they might consider if it was just a regular member who's a trained negotiator. It's not their full-time gig. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's, now, get those, let's get those mental health professionals out there to um, alleviate this a lot faster if possible. And, and is there any advantage to charging people with obstruction that do not listen, that are causing this difficulty. I mean, the, the, there's there there are there are laws there to if, if you're in the way of, of officers doing their work, uh, you're in the way, and you could be charged. I'm going to guess. I mean, is there any advantage to that? Do you think in regards to just deterring people from not being quite frankly stupid? In this case, taking visuals, putting them up, triggering someone potentially doing something. Um, could they? Do you think that that would be enough to at least convince people? Like, don't do stupid things like that and probably a logistical nightmare i think if you call these people out and identify them yourselves on social media and say uh joe fred on his twitter account posted this and he's an idiot he's not helping matters no what, what i know. mean by that is charging them and to really send a message to them and the general public you, there's there's just be some common sense and responsibility as a citizen a stay in your right. vehicle and b don't yes. put that kind of stuff up if you are also making it difficult at, at its core for officers to do their job there is obstruction there is there not well, well, if they can demonstrate some sort of obstructive behavior, then that's a criminal code offense. There are there are uh, sanctions under the Motor Vehicle Act as well for disobey traffic control device if there's a vehicle blocking or fail to obey police direction. So there are some um, there are some um, avenues out there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how successful it'll be. And as for setting up the bridge and in the bridges in in ways that will prevent people from doing this. This is my experience. This is my experience on almost 30 years. Um, most people that are going to commit suicide and jump off a bridge, they just do it. They don't stand around. They don't wait for people to engage with them. They just they'll park their car, they'll get out, they'll walk, and they'll jump right away. Normally, the people that are up there for hours, it's a cry for help. It's a cry for help. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it would cost millions of dollars for the government to make every bridge jump-proof, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Uh, 
but it doesn't happen as often where you're shutting down uh, a major artery like this for hours on end. Mm-hmm. You'd have to do a, an audit, an FOI, to find out how many of those happen. Um, but they're not too often, so I don't know if the government would be justified in spending that amount of money. Yeah. Well, it, uh, I think that's a that's a legitimate question to ask, and certainly when I when I have the minister on next, I will perhaps touch with them on that issue. Grant, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Jeff. Let's talk about stratas uh, and living in condos. Uh, I remember my years as a reporter, um, you would um, occasionally get calls uh, from folks uh, who were shocked, uh, who were condominium owners, uh, where they were hit with a one-time expense, whether it be a building envelope or whatever it may be. Uh, in many cases, that expense would be a one-time cost of twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. It was an emergency, and too often it was the fact that um, some of these stratas did not carry enough money, did not have enough money in reserve in regards uh, for emergencies. And that's a challenge. And some have said uh, when these condominiums are sold, the stratas are sold, um, you know, that look, uh, the the contingency funds are kept low uh, because it's great for selling. It, it's great to market and the costs are low, but sometimes along the way there's a shortfall when emergencies do occur. Well, the provincial government is making some uh, changes uh, to or amendments to the proper uh, Strata Property Act. Joining me now to talk a little bit about that is Ravi Kailam, BC's Minister of Housing. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hey, Giles. Thank you for having me. So walk me through, uh, explain to me a little bit about uh, the government's mindset and wanting to make these changes. Well, Giles, you've uh, explained it quite well right there uh, from your experience of covering many of these stories. You know, there's nothing uh, harder on uh, families, on individuals, when uh, all of a sudden they realize that they don't have enough contingency funds. The Strata Corporation doesn't have enough funds to cover the cost of uh, a major roof repair or uh, major heating-related changes to the building. And so what we've been doing is meeting with the Strata Corporation associations, the insurance industry, uh, many stakeholders, and saying, how do we ensure that we have a level of contingency funds requirements so that individuals who own strata units are safe and protected from any turbulence that may come. And what we found is a strong, overwhelming majority have more than 10% contingency funds in place. But what we found was, uh, as you highlighted, some strata corporations were below that. They were just over the 5% mark and making people very vulnerable any issue that might happen with the building and so this step is is just to take that into consideration to make sure that people are safe uh, in case of uh, major issues that might arise and uh, i was mentioning that uh, you know developers view it as a marketing uh, uh, point where you you can always say look strata fees are are are, are kept at a reasonable rate are they going to be low when you buy uh, is there any onus on developers at all well, yeah, this is uh, something we've been consulting with with them as well, just to make sure that they're captured uh, by this, that the budget that's set for uh, these units when they come on is building in the fact that you need that 10% contingency. So it affects existing buildings, but also new buildings that are coming online. In fact, one of the additional pieces we put into this mm-hmm. is that anyone buying a strata unit now will be given information about insurance, what the covers looks like, uh, so that the buyer that's buying has more information about not only the unit, but the insurance in the building so they can make an informed decision. Uh, 
this is, I guess, viewed more as housekeeping. Uh, but but and you're saying at this point, there most stratas have enough in regards to contingency. Was it? Is this relatively like ten percent of of, of uh, strata corporations, or even less than that? Well, from the strata experts we've talked to, they suggest even less than that. But what they also say is that, um, you know, and one of the things we've been having discussions with the insurance industry on, because we know these insurance rates can be high, is that those buildings that have a contingency funds that are around 5% or slightly higher are also the ones usually that are not doing maintenance on the building, uh, which means more claims, which means more insurance costs, not only for the people in that building, but for everyone. Uh, and so this is not only an effort to protect the individuals in that strata corporation uh, that have a, uh, a unit within that building, but it also overall will help everyone because if we get less claims, it means less uh, lower insurance rates uh, overall for everyone. So that's why the insurance industry was really happy with the announcement because they know this will have a benefit over time for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, around 50, uh, to 2018, 2019, there was a significant amount of stories about the escalating insurance costs uh, for Stratos uh, to the point where some couldn't even uh, get insurance. It was very difficult to, to, to have somebody insure their building. Uh, have uh, these organizations, these Stratos, is it a little easier for them now to have things improved? Yeah, things have improved, uh, I would say, uh, a little bit from then, Josh. That was certainly the, the peak of, of a very challenging time. Uh, for uh, all the building uh, strata corporations, uh, and prices have come down since then. And again, this measure is in consultation with the insurance industry, the strata corporations. What we've done to the, in, in the conversations with them is saying, how do we, in a systemic way, reduce the risk and, and overall start lowering costs? And this was one of those items that there was a consensus on. Everyone agreed that this coming forward would help um, you know, the strata corporations that would protect the individuals have units uh, that may not know that their building doesn't have contingency funds. It protects a new buyer going into the unit because it, it, it requires full disclosure. But on top of that, it helps because the insurance industry sees this as a benefit for everyone to see lower uh, uh, vulnerabilities, lower risks, which means lower costs uh, in the long run. So it really was a triple word score for us. Uh, final question for you, just speaking broadly beyond condominiums and stratas for a second, uh, you've been housing minister for for a short period now, so a lot of work ahead of you. Uh, can we expect more announcements in the weeks, uh, in, in the month ahead or so, in regards to this particular space? Because uh, yeah, I know you've introduced the rental fund and uh, the uh, the premier's boat been, been out, out and about talking about housing as well. Can we expect more announcements in the next four weeks or so? Well, uh, we're working right now on a refresh housing strategy, which will be public in the coming months, which uh, will be, uh, I would say, uh, lay out the path for us to address many of the challenges that have been highlighted. And so you'll be definitely seeing that uh, coming very soon, Jazz. And, and of course, there's always a few more things we're working on. We're uh, uh, heading to Ottawa to make the case to our federal friends about how important housing is. Right now, we're making about a billion dollars a year investment in housing, and they're about a uh, hundred million. So they're at ten percent of of the money we're investing, and we need them to get back in the bigger game. So you'll see a, a few things coming from us in the in the coming weeks, and a new housing strategy coming uh, within the next couple months. Minister, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jazz, and uh, stay safe.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.